Part One, Chapter Thirteen of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Thirteen, Fort Hope. The site of the new fort was now finally determined on. It would be impossible to find a better situation than on the level ground behind Cape Bathurst. On the eastern bank of the lagoon, Hobson determined to commence the construction of the principal house at once. Meanwhile, all must accommodate themselves as best they could, and the sledges were ingeniously utilized to form a provisional encampment. His men being very skilful, the lieutenant hoped to have the principal house ready in a month. It was to be large enough to accommodate for a time the nineteen persons of the party. Later, and before the excessive cold set in, if there should be time, the barracks for the soldiers and the magazines for the furs and skins were to be built. There was not much chance of getting it all done before the end of September, and after that date the winter, with its first bitter frosts and long nights, would arrest all further progress. Of the ten soldiers chosen by Captain Creventy, two, Marbre and Sabine, were skilful hunters. The other eight handled the hatchet with as much address as the musket. Like sailors, they could turn their hands to anything, and were now to be treated more like workmen than soldiers, for they had to build a fort which there was as yet no enemy to attack. Peterson, Belche, Ray, Gary, Pond, Hope, and Calais formed the body of clever, zealous carpenters under the able superintendence of Lilac Nab, a Scotchman from Stirling, who had had considerable experience in the building both of houses and boats. The men were well provided with tools, hatchets, centre-bits, adzes, planes, hand-saws, mallets, hammers, chisels, etc., etc. Ray was most skilful at blacksmith's work, and with the aid of a little portable forge he was able to make all the pins, tenons, bolts, nails, screws, nuts, etc., required in carpentry. They had no mason in the party, but none was wanted, as all the buildings of the factories in the north are of wood. Fortunately, there were plenty of trees about Cape Bathurst, although, as Hobson already remarked to Mrs. Barnett, there was not a rock, a stone, not even a flint or pebble to be seen. The shore was strewn with innumerable quantities of bivalve shells, broken by the surf, and with seaweed or zoophytes, mostly sea-urchant and asteriidae, but the soil consisted entirely of earth and sand, without a morsel of silica or broken granite, and the cape itself was but an accumulation of soft earth, the particles of which were scarcely held together by the vegetation with which it was clothed. In the afternoon of the same day, July 6, Hobson and McNabb, the carpenter, went to choose the site of the principal house on the plateau at the foot of Cape Bathurst. From this point the view embraced the lagoon, and the western districts, to a distance of ten or twelve miles. On the right, about four miles off, towered icebergs of a considerable height, partly draped in mist, whilst on the left stretched apparently boundless plains, vast steppes, which it would be impossible to distinguish from the frozen surface of the lagoon, or from the sea itself in the winter. The spot chosen— Hobson and McNabb set out the outer walls of the house with a line. This outline formed a rectangle, measuring sixty feet on the larger side, and thirty on the smaller. The façade of the house would therefore have a length of sixty feet, 
It was to have a door and three windows on the side of the promontory, where the inner court was to be situated, and four windows on the side of the lagoon. The door was to open at the left corner instead of in the middle. Of the back of the house, for the sake of warmth, this arrangement would impede the entrance of the outer air to the further rooms, and add considerably to the comfort of the inmates of the fort. According to the simple plan agreed upon by the lieutenant and his master carpenter, there would be four compartments in the house. The first to be an antechamber with a double door to keep out the wind, the second to serve as a kitchen, that the cooking which would generate damp might all be done quite away from the living rooms, the third a large hall where the daily meals were to be served in common, and the fourth to be divided into several cabins like the staterooms on board ships. The soldiers were to occupy the dining hall provisionally, and a kind of camp bed was arranged for them at the end of the room. The lieutenant, Mrs. Barnett, Thomas Black, Madge, Mrs. Joliffe, Mrs. McNabb, and Mrs. Ray were to lodge in the cabins of the fourth compartment. They would certainly be packed pretty closely, but it was only a temporary state of things, and when the barracks were constructed, the principal house would be reserved to the officer in command, his sergeant, Thomas Black, Mrs. Barnett, and her faithful Madge, who never left her. Then the fourth compartment might perhaps be divided into three cabins instead of four, to avoid corners as much as possible, is a rule, which would never be forgotten by those who winter in high latitudes. Nooks and corners are, in fact, so many receptacles of ice. The partitions impede the ventilation, and the moisture generated in the air freezes readily, and makes the atmosphere of the rooms unhealthy, causing grave maladies to those who sleep in them. On this account, many navigators who have to winter in the midst of ice have one large room in the centre of their vessel, which is shared by officers and sailors in common. For obvious reasons, however, Hobson could not adopt this plan. From the preceding description, we shall have seen that the future house was to consist merely of a ground floor. The roof was to be high, and its sides to slope considerably, so the water could run easily off them. The snow would, however, settle upon them, and once they were covered with it, the house would be, so to speak, hermetically closed, and the inside temperature would be kept at the same mean height. Snow is, in fact, a very bad conductor of heat. It prevents it from entering, it is true, but what is more important in an Arctic winter, it also keeps it from getting out. The carpenter was to build two chimneys, one above the kitchen, the other in connection with the stove of the large dining-room, which it was to heat, and the compartment containing the cabins. The architectural effect of the whole would certainly be poor, but the house would be as comfortable as possible, and what more could any one desire? Certainly an artist who had once seen it would not soon forget this winter residence, set down in the gloomy arctic twilight, in the midst of snowdrifts, half hidden by icicles draped in white from roof to foundation, its walls encrusted with snow, and the smoke from its fires assuming strangely contorted forms in the wind. But now, to tell of the actual construction of this house, as yet existing only in imagination, this, of course, was the business of McNabb and his men. And while the carpenters were at work, the foraging party to whom the commissariat was entrusted would not be idle. There was plenty for every one to do. The first step was to choose suitable timber, and a species of scotch fir was decided on, 
which grew conveniently upon the neighbouring hills, and seemed altogether well adapted to the multifarious uses to which it would be put. For in the rough and ready style of habitation which they were planning there could be no variety of material, and every part of the house, outside and inside walls, flooring, ceiling, partitions, rafters, ridges, framework and tiling, would have to be contrived of planks, beams and timbers. As may readily be supposed, finished workmanship was not necessary for such a description of building, and MacNab was able to proceed very rapidly without endangering the safety of the building. About a hundred of these firs were chosen, and felled. They were neither barked nor squared, and formed so many timbers, averaging some twenty feet in length. The axe and chisel did not touch them except at the ends, in order to form the tenons and mortises by which they were to be secured to one another. Very few days sufficed to complete this part of the work, and the timbers were brought down by the dogs to the site fixed on for the principal building. To start with, the site had been carefully levelled. The soil, a mixture of fine earth and sand, had been beaten and consolidated with heavy blows. The brushwood, with which it was originally covered, was burnt, and the thick layer of ashes, thus produced, would prevent the damp from penetrating the floors. A clean and dry foundation, having been thus secured, on which to lay the first joists, upright posts were fixed at each corner of the site, and at the extremities of the inside walls, to form the skeleton of the building. The posts were sunk to a depth of some feet in the ground, after their ends had been hardened in the fire, and were slightly hollowed at each side to receive the cross-beams of the outer wall, between which the openings for the doors and windows had been arranged for. These posts were held together at the top by horizontal beams well let into the mortises, and consolidating the whole building. On these horizontal beams, which represented the architraves of the first two fronts, rested the high trusses of the roof, which overhung the walls like the eaves of a chalet. Above this squared architrave were laid the joists of the ceiling, and those of the floor upon the layer of ashes. The timbers, both in the inside and outside walls, were only laid side by side. To ensure their being properly joined, Ray the blacksmith drove strong iron bolts through them at intervals and when even this contrivance proved insufficient to close the interstices as hermetically as was necessary, McNabb had recourse to caulking, a process which seamen find invaluable in rendering vessels watertight. Only as a substitute for tow he used a sort of dry moss, with which the eastern side of the cape was covered, driving it into the crevices with caulking irons and a hammer, filling up each hollow with layers of hot tar, obtained without difficulty from the pine-trees, and thus making the walls and boarding impervious to rain and damp of the winter season. The door and windows in the two fronts were roughly but strongly built, and the small panes of the later glazed with icing-glass, which, though rough, yellow, and almost opaque, was yet the best substitute for glass which the resources of the country afforded and its imperfections really mattered little, as the windows were sure to be always open in fine weather, while during the long night of the Arctic winter they would be useless, and have to be kept closed and defended by heavy shutters with strong bolts against the violence of the gales. Meanwhile the house was being quickly fitted up inside, by means of a double door between the outer and inner halls, a too sudden change of temperature was avoided, 
and the wind was prevented from blowing with unbroken force into the rooms. The air-pumps, brought from Fort Reliance, were so fixed as to let in fresh air whenever excessive cold prevented the opening of doors or windows, one being made to eject the impure air from within, the other to renew the supply, for the lieutenant had given his whole mind to this important matter. The principal cooking utensil was a large iron furnace, which had been brought piecemeal from Fort Reliance, and which the carpenter put up without any difficulty. The chimneys for the kitchen and ball, however, seemed likely to tax the ingenuity of the workmen to the utmost, as no material within their reach was strong enough for the purpose, and stone, as we have said before, was nowhere to be found in the country around Cape Bathurst. The difficulty appeared insurmountable, when the invincible lieutenant suggested that they should utilize the shells with which the shore was strewed. "'Make chimneys of shells?' cried the carpenter. "'Yes, MacNab,' replied Hobson. "'We must collect the shells, grind them, burn them, and make them into lime, then mould the lime into bricks, and use them in the same way.' "'Let us try the shells by all means,' replied the carpenter, and so the idea was put in practice at once, and many tons collected of calcareous shells identical with those found in the lowest stratum of the tertiary formations.' A furnace was constructed for the decomposition of the carbonate, which is so large an ingredient of these shells, and thus the lime required was obtained in the space of a few hours. It would perhaps be too much to say that the substance thus made was as entirely satisfactory as if it had gone through all the usual processes, but it answered its purpose, and strong conical chimneys soon adorned the roof to the great satisfaction of Mrs. Paulina Barnett, who congratulated the originator of the scheme warmly on its success, only adding laughingly that she hoped the chimneys would not smoke. "'Of course they will smoke, madam,' replied Hobson coolly. "'All chimneys do.' All this was finished within a month, and on the 6th of August they were to take possession of the new house." While McNabb and his men were working so hard, the foraging party, with the lieutenant at its head, had been exploring the environs of Cape Bathurst, and satisfied themselves that there would be no difficulty in supplying the company's demand for fur and feathers, so soon as they could set about hunting in earnest. In the meantime they prepared the way for future sport, contenting themselves for the present with the capture of a few couples of reindeer which they intended to domesticate for the sake of their milk and their young. They were kept in a paddock, about fifty yards from the house, and entrusted to the care of McNab's wife, an Indian woman, well qualified to take charge of them. The care of the household fell to Mrs. Paulina Barnett, and this good woman, with Madge's help, was invaluable in providing for all the small wants, which would inevitably have escaped the notice of the men." After scouring the country within a radius of several miles, the lieutenant notified, as the result of his observations, that the territory on which they had established themselves, and to which he gave the name of Victoria Land, was a large peninsula, about one hundred and fifty square miles in extent, with very clearly defined boundaries, connected with the American continent by an isthmus, extending from the lower end of Washburn Bay, on the east, as far as the corresponding slope, on the opposite coast. The lieutenant next proceeded to ascertain what were the resources of the lake and river, and found great reason to be satisfied with the result of his examination. 
the shallow waters of the lake teemed with trout, pike, and other available freshwater fish, and the little river was a favorite resort of salmon with shoals of white bait and smelts. The supply of sea fish was not so good, and though many a grumpus and whale passed by in the offing, the latter probably flying from the harpoons of the Bering Strait fishermen, there were no means of capturing them unless one by chance happened to get stranded on the coast. Nor would Hobson allow any of the seals which abounded on the western shore to be taken until a satisfactory conclusion should be arrived as to how to use them to the best advantage. The colonists now considered themselves fairly installed in their new abode, and after due deliberation unanimously agreed to bestow upon the settlement the name of Fort Good Hope. Alas, the auspicious title was never to be inscribed upon a map. The undertaking, begun so bravely, and with such prospects of success, was destined never to be carried out, and another disaster would have to be added to the long list of failures in Arctic enterprise. End of chapter 13